for the reading of God's word. Our scripture passage this morning comes from John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, uh, Pilate gives two commands to the crowd in this passage. In our translation, it says, here is your king, here is the man, but it says, behold the man, behold the king. Maybe some of you have heard the Latin uh, phrase. It's the name of some famous paintings uh, depicting Jesus being prepared for crucifixion. It's ecce homo, ecce rex, behold the man, behold the king. And this is a passage where taking the time to do that, Taking the time to behold, to deeply examine the scene, to look at what John is presenting to us in this passage, it is well worth our time. 
It's worth our time because in doing so, we will find a window to our own hearts. And as we look at this picture, we will find a window into the very heart of God. But not only that, I hope as we look at this this morning, as we behold this portrait of Christ prepared for his crucifixion, that it will also show us the path to a life filled with meaning and purpose. A life that might look foolish and weak to the world, but a life that is full of wisdom and power. And so if you're coming in here this morning and you feel disconnected, if you feel disillusioned, if you feel discouraged with your life, I want you to pay special attention for the next few minutes because I think God has something for you today. So let's do that. Let's, let's break this scene down. Let's behold what John puts before us. And first I want us to start by beholding the crowd. And then I want us to behold the man And then, last, I want us to behold his people. Behold the crowd. In recent years, it has become a big trend to make TV shows and movies that have an extremely dark tone, right? It seems like every other week there's a new show coming out that takes place in some post-apocalyptic universe filled with terrible people, and then even even the heroes in the show, they're not truly heroes, they're kind of anti-heroes with mixed motivations and and, and all kinds of problems, and and don't get me wrong, I I like some of those shows, right? When when Breaking Bad was still on, I was on the edge of my seat every week, you know, waiting for the next episode to come out to figure out how this story was going to end. But I can also relate to my, my friend who said, I watch sitcoms. (laughs) I watch sitcoms because I get enough brutality from the real world. And he's right. Shows can be dark, but life can be a lot darker. And this passage is Exhibit A. This is one of the darkest real-life moments in the history of the world. It is all of humanity's wickedness on display. First, we have Pilate. In the opening sentence, we see Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, ordering Jesus to be flogged. And just a few lines before this, we read it last week, Pilate just admitted that he has no basis for a charge against him. Pilate is the living embodiment of injustice, of the misuse of power. And somehow, at the same time as he is throwing his weight around, he also manages to be incredibly weak. In verse 9, we read just a second ago that he is genuinely concerned that Jesus might be more than an ordinary man. He says, where do you come from? But instead of standing up for what he believes is right, he crumbles under the pressure of the Jewish leaders. 
he immediately folds at the first political threat. In verse 12, it says, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. He just gives in. In Pilate, I think that we see something that we have seen throughout all of history, something that we even see today. The selfish ambitions and the corruptions of people in power. We see the cowardice of a person who knows what is right, but chooses to do what's best for himself instead. And we see the pettiness, right? As he's arguing with these Jewish leaders, as he asks them at the end, shall I crucify your king? When he knows they already hate Jesus, that he's riling them up, that he's making them angry. And of course, in him we see the ultimate evil. Sentencing Jesus to death, despite pronouncing him innocent. Second, in this scene, we see the soldiers. Human cruelty on display. Abusing a man who has no recourse. Mocking him. Physically assaulting him. And then, in the midst of it, attempting to humiliate and shame him in any way possible. With thorns jammed into his head. A mock purple robe forced on his wounded body. It might have been completely legal for them to do what they did. It might have been considered all right by the people at the time. But there is such an absence of basic human compassion in this moment. It's a reminder of all those times in human history when people have carried out atrocities because, well, that's, those are our orders. It's a reminder of all those times in human history where people drunk on that little bit of power that they have have chosen to carry out their orders with far greater cruelty than is actually required. Next, we see the chief priests and the Jewish leaders. These are the devout religious people, the churchgoers, the elders and the deacons and the pastors. These are the people who should have been the most loving and the most compassionate. But instead, these people are completely compromised. In their desire to enforce the law, they have abandoned the core principles of their faith. In their desire to keep the rules, they have chosen to commit an even greater sin. And did you notice this as, as we were reading it a moment ago? We talked a lot in the last few weeks and months as we've studied John. We've talked about the tension that existed between the Jewish people and the Roman government. These were an oppressed people. They had an uneasy relationship with the people ruling over them. In fact, if you read the history books, 40 years from now, 
beyond this story, the Jewish people revolt against the Roman government. And it ends up with Rome smacking them down so hard that they completely destroy the temple forever. The relationship between the Jewish people and the Roman government, it was more than tense. The Jewish people despised the Roman government. Here's something else. Did you know that traditionally, when the Jewish people would recite the great Hallel from the Psalms, in their worship, at the end of this prayer, they would always say this. And I don't think I have this up here, so just listen carefully. They would say, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Besides thee, we have no king, redeemer, or savior, no liberator, deliverer, provider, none who takes pity in every time of distress or trouble. They would say, we have no king but thee. And here, in this moment, to accomplish this terrible thing, they loudly proclaim, we have no king but Caesar. Again, this is not strange to us. This is something we see. Faith sacrificed on the altar of politics and power. The priests and the leaders profess words of idolatry so they can murder the Messiah sent to save them. And finally, we see the crowd as a whole. Why are they even here? Do you remember? Why are they in the city? They came to worship. They came for the Passover. They came to worship God. They came to remember that moment when God had spared their lives. When he had set them free from captivity in Egypt by protecting them through the blood of a lamb without blemish. And here they are, riled up, bloodthirsty, demanding the life of an innocent man. And why? Because their leaders told them to do it? Because they were looking for something entertaining to do that night? It is a disgusting picture. But the point of the picture, I want you to understand, it's not about how bad those people were. It is a picture of how the world still is today. The sins on display in this scene are the same ones that we read about on the news every night. And the same ones that we are ashamed to admit dwell in the dark corners of our own hearts. And I want you to notice, as you imagine this crowd, there are no good guys left in the story. Not even his closest friends are standing at Jesus' side. And so I don't want you for a single moment to think that if you had been there, you would have done something different. Because no one did. Jesus was despised and rejected and abandoned and surrounded by a violent mob who was demanding his life. So behold the crowd. 
just close your eyes for a second. Imagine the crowd, and I want you to imagine yourself standing in it. And hear this verse from Paul. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now let's look at him. Behold the man. Pilate's words in the passage, they spoke more than he could possibly know. When he put Jesus out and he said, behold the man. You know, when you, th- when you think about this scene, when we think about this crowd, you really want to look away from it, right? It's all so miserable. It's overwhelming. The reality of these people who want nothing to do with their Savior. It makes you want to hide your face. It makes you want to flee in the other direction. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus looks like the victim here, and indeed, he is the literal victim here. But don't forget, he is here by choice. He's here by choice. In verse 11, Jesus says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Jesus lets us know that there is a story playing out that is far greater than anything Pilate gets, anything this crowd understands. When Christ, when he stands before the crowd and Pilate says, behold the man, it's worth us asking the question. It's worth us looking at this man and wondering, why is Christ a man? Why is God the Son flesh and blood to begin with? Well, the answer is pretty simple. Christ is a man because God is defined first and foremost by his love. Christ is a man because God is defined first and foremost by his love. Do you remember all the way back in Exodus, the story where Moses wants to see God and God agrees And he hides Moses in the rock and he passes before him and God proclaims his name. Exodus chapter 34. Do you remember what God says about himself? He says, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin, but... It says right after that, who will by no means clear the guilty. God says that what defines him is he's defined by love. A love that will extend for thousands of generations. But he's also a God of justice. He is a God who will not let the guilty go unpunished. He is a good God, and that means he cannot let evil and wickedness just continue forever and ever. So how does God respond? How does he deal with a crowd like this? How does he deal with a world like this one? Well, he doesn't hide his face. He doesn't turn the other way. 
he enters into it. And what's so amazing is when Jesus comes, he doesn't enter in as the judge. He doesn't come in as the powerful king, the ruler who's going to immediately stamp out all the evil. He becomes one of us. That's how this gospel started, do you remember? John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. In verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God became man to take our place. To stand before the judgment that we were supposed to get. It is incredibly painful. And it's incredibly moving to realize that right in this moment, as these people are shouting for Jesus' death, the very people who killed Jesus were in that moment experiencing and receiving his greatest act of love for them. He was bearing the weight of their sin. He was taking the punishment that we had earned for our rebellion against God. And then Pilate says at the end, he says, behold your king. Or in our translation, it says, here is your king. And you know he's not honest about that, right? His his words, they're dripping with sarcasm. They're dripping with mockery. But you know, of course, the irony is he is a king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And this moment, this move is the most authoritative move in the history of the universe. Since Adam and Eve first rebelled, what we read about in our confession a moment ago, since the the first moments of their rebellion against God in the garden, this world has suffered the effects of the fall. Every aspect of our life is impacted by the curse. Everywhere we look, we come face to face with the ways that God's creation, a creation he designed to be good, that he proclaimed was good and perfect, we see the ways this world has been corrupted by our own rebellion. We see it, of course, on the news. As we hear about wars that are raging overseas, as we read about school shootings that have taken place just in the past few days, but we also see it much closer. We see it in our relationships, the ways that conflict and division are always creeping in, always threatening our peace. We see it in our own hearts. We see it in our own minds, our battle with insecurity and anxiety and fear and depression. We know deep down that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. That's the painful reality of our rebellion, that this curse, it extends out into everything. In Genesis, when 
God was describing what this curse would be like, what would be the impact of their choices, he said that cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you. And so again, behold the king in his greatest act of love. What's on his head? Those very thorns. Charles Spurgeon said that Jesus became the king of the curse for us. In love. He took on himself the consequence of our actions. And then in justice, he put himself in the place to bear the wrath that we deserve. Paying it completely with his perfect, sinless life. Giving himself for us as our substitute. That's the second image I want you to see. Behold the man. God the son. Become man for us. Eke homo. Behold the king. The king of the universe. Crowned with thorns. Beaten and bloody. Spit upon. Laughed at as he rescues us from our own destruction. Ecce Rex, behold the king. And the third thing I want us to see this morning is his people. It's the last image in this text, but uh, you know, if this sermon were a movie, this would be the point where everything fades to black for a second. And then there's a little text on the bottom that says, about two months later. And the light comes back up, and once again, we're gathered in Jerusalem. And once again, we're here for a religious festival. And many of those people who were in that crowd, who participated in Christ's crucifixion, they have returned. But this time, the Apostle Peter is speaking to them. And he says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. But this time, there is a very different response. This time, there are no angry jeers. There are no demands. Instead, this is how the crowd responds. They say, when they heard these words, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And in that moment, 3,000 people became the first church. 
And as you go on and you read the passage, you see the kind of life that they started to live, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that they were together all the time worshiping and in prayer, that they were giving away their belongings and sharing them with everyone. They met in their homes and in the temple, that they were praising God. They enjoyed the favor of all people, and it says God added to their number every day more and more people who were being saved. A few years ago, when the Patriots came back in the Super Bowl from being down 28-3, you know, I thought, that is a great turnaround. But I'll tell you what, this is the biggest upset victory of all time. Do you see what is happening from, from the pit of despair? The most violent and evil and sinful crowd you could ever imagine. And even in this scene, being preached to by a man who had himself denied even knowing Jesus. From that group, God birthed a church that has spread the good news of Christ's salvation throughout the world. Those people who killed an innocent man at Passover were rescued by the blood of the real Passover lamb. But if you keep reading this story, not just two months later, but two years later, 200 years later, 2,000 years later, there's one last thing we need to see about these people, the people of God. And it's this. The story of the church mirrors the story of Christ. The story of the church mirrors the story of Christ. And what I mean by that is that the lives of Christ's followers throughout the ages, they reflect this journey of our Savior. We are led by a king who wears a crown of thorns. And the call to follow him for that first crowd standing here and for all of us sitting here this morning is a call to live like him. The call to follow him is a call to come and die with him. Another way that Charles Spurgeon put it was, if our Savior wore a crown of thorns, then why would we expect to wear a crown of gold? Why would we expect comfort and ease in this life? We shouldn't. Peter said in one of his letters, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. He says, don't be disillusioned. Don't be discouraged. And when you look at this picture of our Savior, battered and bloody, innocent, standing in front of a crowd, that scene is a scene of judgment for the world who's standing against him. But it's also a comfort for all of us who are following him with our lives. The story of the church 
is a story that is often written in blood and tears. But it's a story of redemption. And so that means two quick things to apply this when we take it home this week. One is this. If you don't know Jesus, it's time to come. It's time to come and receive his payment for your sin. To receive redemption through his blood. If you don't know him, I want to invite you to behold the man. To look at him. To let the image cut you to the heart. And let his salvation transform you the way it did this crowd. And secondly, if you do know him, and you find that you're struggling right now, if you're discouraged right now, if you are disillusioned about how your life is going in this fallen world, I want you to behold him today. As you're carrying your cross, as you're following him in that humble life of service and submission, as you're out there resisting temptation and reconciling your broken relationships, as you're offering mercy to those who have wronged you, as you're seeking justice for those who've been denied it, don't be overcome, but be encouraged. Behold your king. He has walked this path, and it ends in glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. This is a difficult passage to study. It's painful to look because it shows us who we are and how much we need you. Lord, I pray that you would cut us all to the heart and that you would send us running to you. I pray that we would receive your grace and your mercy for our sin and we would receive your comfort in our suffering. And God, I pray that as we live out lives following you in faithfulness, this church would be a light to the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.